0: everybody. Welcome to the Inking of Immunity podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Chris Lynn. I'm a biocultural medical anthropologist from the University of Alabama, and I am with my co-hosts...
1: It is Rebecca Owens, and I am a lecturer in psychology at the University of Sunderland in the UK. And I'm
2: Mike Smetana, a biocultural medical anthropology student at the University of Alabama.
0: And we are talking today to an independent scholar, archaeologist named Benoit Robitaille. I believe that is how he pronounces his name. We'll find out in just a second. He is an archaeologist who did his training at the University of Montreal and specializes in pre-electric tattooing instruments around the world. And What I was really excited to talk to him about, and some of you may know him because he uh, assists Aaron Dieter Wolf with the Archaeology Inc. Instagram account. I I didn't realize the two of them were on there together, but they've co-authored a lot of stuff. And when we talked to Aaron in the first episode, he mentioned what they in the trade call perpendicularly hafted tattoo instrument, right? So for those of you listening and going like, wow, these intellectual academic geeks have already lost me, what that means tafting is attaching something to a stick or something else. And of course perpendicular is the opposite of parallel, right? So basically you create a hammer for your tattoo tool. And actually for this episode, again you cannot see me, but I am holding in my hand what is called an owl in Samoa, which is a perpendicularly hafted tattoo instrument. It's like a little hammer with a tattoo comb on the end and you take a mallet or a a stick, I use a drumstick when I practice on myself, and pound the tattooing in. And what I wanted to talk to Ben about is Pacific Tattooing and the localization or the restriction of this tattooing tool complex to that region. Um, But he's also working on a database of... I believe, tattoo instruments in museums around the world, pre-electric tattoo instruments. So he has a lot he can talk to us about. He joked to me beforehand that he is the resident helper, party pooper curmudgeon at Archaeology Inc., and that he also is subject to rambling on about all this cool stuff he's talking about. So we're excited to have him on. Let's start a little bit with your background. You know, I don't know, before you met Aaron, after you met, whatever. There's not much to find about you Googling, right? You're a rogue scholar, an independent scholar. So tell us about yourself.
3: Well, you know, I think one of the reasons for that is that I'm actually um, a vegetable grower. That's what I do. So not much to say on the internets about growing vegetables. I sell them locally and people know me. I'm Ben the vegetable guy. That's awesome. (laughs) But um, yeah, I studied anthropology, I, did a, I have a bachelor's degree in anthropology, and I, I was really intent on becoming a, a Mesoamericanist, a Minist, ethnology and archaeology, I was interested in both, I spent a good deal of time in, in Guatemala in the late 80s, early 90s, and uh, decided to go back to school to maybe try and find a way to get back there and get paid for it. <laughs> But, you know, it's a really, really crowded um, sub-discipline of anthropology. When I was studying, you know, my, uh, my uh, PhDs were like super competitive, super crowded. Anyways, my teacher was a specialist in um, long-range comparative method in culture history. And I took a seminar with him. And it gave me a chance to answer a long-standing question I had. Because I- I've been interested in tattooing since I was a little kid. The process, the tools. And I came up in the hardcore scene in the early and mid-1980s. So there was a lot of tattoos there when there weren't many tattoos anywhere else. And, you know, going with my friends to tattoo shops, seeing the machines, you know. It was like such a magic wand to me, you know, the tattoo machine. And, and I was interested in the process. And I think when I was 12 or 13 years old, I, I poked my first tattoo with a sewing needle and a, you know, wrapped around in thread because I had seen that in a book somewhere. So, you know, through that interest, I had noticed in a, in a PBS documentary, people in Borneo using these perpendicularly hafted tools. And it seemed so odd to me. Why, why do it that way? Since, you know, I, I'd seen tools and, and, you know, tools are generally inline tools, a needle or a needle at the end of a stick. And later on, I saw the Modern Primitives book when it came out and uh, I read the whole thing at the bookstore, just like, whoa. And in there, there were some like drawings. I think Schiffmacher had done these, uh, you know, the Dutch tattooist who's got an interest in uh, tattoo history. Um, he had some plates there. And, and I saw that in New Zealand, the Maori were also using a perpendicularly hafted tool. And it just stuck in my head. Like, I wonder why. I didn't see a connection at all. I mean, it's, you know, thousands of kilometers apart. And so when, when we did this seminar on the long range uh, comparative method in culture history, so oh, that's a chance to like, look at this, you know, and here we are today, 25 years later, I never stopped looking.
1: Your expertise is pre-electric tattoo tools. So I was kind of wondering what got you interested in, in this niche and, the, and a bit about the database that you're compiling?
3: You know, through the study that I was doing, obviously I was looking at, you know, pre-modern tools and I needed to create, I guess, you know, in, in like phylogeny or the comparative method, you, you want to create an outgroup. If you're going to say that perpendicularly hafted tools are a distinct subgroup of Doing. You, you got to understand the worldwide variation. So you know, I just uh, looked for every possible you know pre-electric tattooing tool I could find and started constituting a, a database. You know, at, at first I was just really a sampling, so I was just looking you know country by country or something like that. Eventually, I listened to a podcast, Chris talking about uh, his work, and um, I noted that you had started with the human resources area files. Yeah, which will give you you know tattooing presence or absence but there was no tools listed they didn't pick it up as a trait that might be of value further on so uh, i fell back on ethnologue which is the great compendium of languages of the world compiled by the summer institute of linguistics in order to translate the bible into every language in the world anyways so uh, i created a list of every language in the world and hoped to find a tattooing instrument for every single one of them and uh That's over 25 years, that's created quite a large database of pre-modern tattooing tools from which to work from.
0: So where is your database?
3: (laughs) Most of it is in my head.
0: (laughs) I was afraid you'd say that.
3: (laughs) Some of it is back here, some file folder, you know, I got, In, in recent times, I've kind of put it in electronic form these super unwieldy word documents with tons of images in them.
0: So there's a lot of work to be done by you or with you to publish this and and get this out there. I can relate. I remember, you know, reading the Modern Primitives book as well, uh, captivated by the same stuff, same period, punk rock, all that. I mean, that book is, I don't know how much you know about it, but Vail Vail was working at City Lights and was into the punk rock scene. And that's, he was trying to do a, a punk rock meets cultural anthropology type of book about tattooing. So he did hit a sweet spot with a bunch of us. And I remember doing some of those early papers for my advisor and thinking about the tools a little bit, but you're right. It never even occurred to me till your paper that you could only find these tools in the Oceania. So I'm going to jump Mike's spot here a little bit just to sort of ask what pulled your brain toward that region. Was it specifically the hammer tool or?
3: You know, you're saying, yeah, there's a lot to do, you know, with the database and that. People push me to do the work. You know, there's a a lot of great people taking my hand and taking me out of my farm and made me go to Europe and et cetera, et cetera. What took me specifically to Oceania and to the bone tool, you know, why I ended up writing that paper is that I had a friend in university who um, got a job teaching and, and occupies a laboratory where I used to smoke cigarettes with him as a graduate student illegally. And he's now the guy in the laboratory. And I was drifting away from school a bit and he was organizing a work group on bone tools for the Society of American Archaeology meeting that happened to be in Montreal that year and he said you got bone tools in those you know PHTI perpendicularly hafted tattooing instruments and he goes well, why won't you write about them and I was like well yeah there's bone tools but I don't know if there's something to say specifically about them so I, mean, I just you know put my head to it and I was like hey yeah there's really a specific subgroup of the PHTI that use bones as points and so um, you know i with it. And also it's you know I mean, it's a it's a rich place for studying tattooing instruments. And when I was doing my general survey of these tools, the richest information was coming from the Pacific, not only ethnographic descriptions, but also archaeological data. You know, the the tattooing signal in archaeology in the Pacific is a lot clearer than anywhere else because the tools are so obviously tattooing instruments. They're unequivocal. We know them ethnographically, and we see them in in sites. We don't have to do use-wear studies. In the Americas, people used bone awls before the 19th century. In the Americas later on, and and the bone-all signal kind of disappears because the minute people get trade needles, metal needles, that is just so much more efficient, they just take over. So in my early survey of the Americas, I had needles everywhere. But when you look at the old descriptions, especially from uh, religious people, you know, 17th century, you get the bone awls. And recently, uh, Aaron, my friend, Christian Gate-Saint-Pierre, who's the guy who pushed me to do the paper on the bone tools, um, did some good use wear studies not so long ago. So now we're like, OK, yeah, these, these awls we find in archaeological sites or tattooing instruments, but that was not super obvious. And anywhere outside of the Pacific, you know, simple bone points can serve so many functions. But the bone combs we find in the Pacific are obvious tattooing instruments. So that that gave it a real and a rich base to work from.
2: So talking about the bone tools, in your paper, you made a distinction between bone or not bone with these tools. So beyond this simple distinction, there were some other trends you noted with the perpendicular the tattoo mm-hmm. instruments, such as the matrix or non-matrix, brace handled or single pronged versus two pronged. Can you tell us about some of these tools and how and why they differ from each other?
3: Yeah, well, first of all, I want to say that uh, when I hear you name, you know, this, these kind of preliminary types that I propose, the names are so unwieldy, aren't they? (laughs) (laughs) Brace-handled axe sounds like some kind of crazy um, steampunk madness. Yeah, obviously, within the, the oceanic tool group, there's, uh, you know, some clear patterns and uh, distinctions, subtypes, subgroups. A lot of the ones that you just mentioned, you find in, in more marginal areas or in, in spotty distributions throughout Melanesia. The 2 prong tool is a, is a real strange one because two points is really rare in the worldwide, you know, variation of tattooing instruments. It's not um, generally be an uneven number. Two is really rare. You find the two prongs in Fiji. I'm pretty sure it's only in Fiji. But there's many examples and they'll vary. Some have very long points made from wing bones of bats, which is important. and We can get back to that later. Some are short. Some are actually split plates, so kind of a bone comb, but with just two points and a split point. I have no idea why. I've wondered if perhaps these things may have served to produce uh, parallel lines of dots. You know, I don't know. Within the, you know, the, the Pacific area, and within Polynesia, we have really clear subgroups. The most widespread one that covers uh, Micronesia and Polynesia is uh, what I've called the narrow bone combs. That's uh, you know, a plate of bone with three to seven points. That's widespread, you find it just about everywhere. And on top of that, in a more restricted area, you get more complex combs. So the next step would be uh, wide combs. There's narrow combs and wide combs that are made from one piece of bone. When I talk about bone combs, what I'm actually talking about, I'm using a shorthand for um, bone, shell, tooth, and uh, turtle shell and seashell. So, you know, the prehistoric plastics, some people have called them. So when I talk about bone, it could be a little bit, you know, it could be all of that. So you got wide combs and narrow combs. And obviously the cutoff between a wide comb and a narrow comb is kind of arbitrary. And once again, you know, when I called my study a preliminary typology, I really meant it was preliminary. We're really cutting back the weeds and just trying to see something clear and maybe start to create some distinction. But anybody who looks at them will see, yeah, some are wide and some are narrow. So you have these wide combs, which have a more restricted distribution, mostly in Polynesia, but there's some extraordinary examples from the west Western Micronesia also. After that, you've got lateral composite combs. So combs that are made from two pieces stuck together and then hafted. And the most complex would be the lateral superposed composite combs, which are found only in Samoa and most likely were used in Tonga. But there's something we could get into about that also later, if you like. And these patterns are interesting because when you look at archaeology, you get an idea of how these forms diversified from an early prototype, which was probably a relatively narrow single-piece bone comb, itself derived from assembled needle combs, which are just a, a series of thorns or of fish teeth that may have been placed together and hafted. I proposed, and nobody's, you know, gone out and out rejecting it, is that when we look at archaeology, we see the earliest combs. Obviously, archaeology of tattooing instruments is just, we get glimpses. You know, the picture isn't complete. It's like there's holes in a black sheet where a bit of light is coming out. But the pattern we see is we start with um, Tonga tapu in Tonga, relatively narrow quadrangular combs. And as time goes by, combs get wider and um, we see in archaeological sites that split halves of wider combs with nothing to lash them together as you find in the later day society islands or um, Hawaiian, you find these broken halves that, that don't seem to have been lashed together. And my impression is that people are experimenting with wider and wider combs for whatever function. And the way the comb is hafted, the pressure of constant tapping, my impression is that it was splitting the combs in half. And so the lateral composite forms may have come about as some kind of a shock absorption, trying to give flexibility to the tool and durability to the tool. And maybe even have started as a repairing, you know, just simple repairing of combs, because it's kind of an involved process to make these combs, especially the teeth. And eventually, well, you get, you know, some old people are like, just go all out and, and add a shank. And I believe improved by introducing the use of uh, pig's tusk, which seems to be like the most solid material, because something we see over and over in in museum examples is broken teeth. So there was obviously a problem with that teeth were breaking off. I think the Samoans were like, we're going to use the hardest material possible, the pig's tusk, but the pig's tusk is difficult to make into a long comb for hafting. So there's this uh, turtle shell shank that's there. And the turtle shell shank sometimes I think is um, maybe derived from turtle shell combs. So we have some turtle shell combs. They're not super common. And I know Wal Ambrose, who's from the Australian National University, wrote a paper and he was casting doubt on the fact that people actually use turtle shell to make combs, but they definitely did. There's examples from the Marquesas, from uh, Micronesia, and from Fiji. After 25 years of looking at tools, I know what tools were made to order for trade with, you know, travelers, explorers, and tourists, which is what Ambrose suggests the turtle shell combs were made for. And these tools are the real deal made out of turtle shell, but obviously turtle shell seems to be a more fragile material than bone and seems to have faded in use in many places
0: for listeners just to give uh, and we don't have a visual dimension of this I was showing my co hosts a second ago I just have a a contemporary owl here that I got from Samoa but just to give I guess a little bit of a sense is this is a hammer but instead of being hammered in with one hand it's held over the skin and then hit in with a separate stick and so if you've had this type of tattoo if you've had both types of tattoo an electric and a, a hand hammered tattoo the hammering aspect is not insignificant. It hurts like a motherfucker, basically. Pretty much everyone I've talked to about this says this hurts a lot worse than electric. And that was my experience. But what you're talking about is also that continual banging on this is going to put a lot of pressure on the organic piece that's up here. Mm -hmm. And the way it was described to me was that it would be turtle shell to stabilize here and then the boar's tusk below. And one of the reasons they've switched over to plexiglass is because although boar tusk makes a really solid comb, it degrades in an autoclave, right? So we've got all sorts of innovation happening now. But what I'm hearing from you is this has been a continual process of innovation over the thousands of years that they were tattooed in the Pacific. Like these are constantly changing based on environmental conditions and the availability of resources.
3: Mm -hmm. Absolutely, but I think there's also, you know, cultural elements at play. You know, turtle shell has uh, important symbolic value. I think pigs also. Yeah. So, you know, that is it purely technological? I I don't think so. I think there's a confluence of technological and cultural imperatives that uh, dictate choice of materials,
0: which I think is still the case now.
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it's ever-changing. It, Polynesia is really interesting because if you look at perpendicularly hafted instruments, the point structure, you know, it's relatively conservative elsewhere. The variation is not huge, but in Polynesia, people seem to be motivated to innovate. And uh, Samoans more than anyone else. I've written somewhere that it's the most, you know, complex tattooing instrument before the invention of uh, electric tattooing instruments, and that it's the end point mm-hmm. of, uh, of a long history of experience experimentation and improvement of uh, tattooing instruments.
0: Since I work in Samoa, I'd love to hear why you think that's more complex. But I want to push us back a little further into the past because one of the interesting things that you provide some data for and you draw on some other archaeologists, I think Bellwood wrote The First Islanders and is an expert in that area, but is this idea that this tattooing complex arrives with Neolithic migration from where? Where does this all start?
3: Yeah. Well, you know, when I started, it was obvious that, well, obvious. I mean, the, the most likely in parsimonious explanation for the resemblance of these tools in a very well-defined geographic area, there was some kind of um, cultural relatedness, you know, it was an inherited trait, whether it was inherited vertically through, you know, inheritance from previous generations, or at some point laterally from one group to another through diffusion. There was a, a sense that I was looking at a family of tools and not a series of independent inventions. You know, obviously, if you have a a well-circumscribed area with a a well-defined culture trait, you find nowhere else in the world. It's highly unlikely that it was just reinvented by everyone who were neighbors and was impossible to reinvent anywhere else. That said, just from looking at the tools, I would have loved that the method would provide some kind of a story. I looked at corroborating evidence. So early on in the study, it became obvious that there was a very high correlation between speaking languages belonging to the Austronesian family and using perpendicularly hafted tools. So from there, I turned to the literature on Austronesians. Why are Austronesian languages spread where they are and how that came about? It, it's, a, it's a dynamic and constantly evolving in sub-discipline, Austronesian studies. And I would say that I would um, join the, the most consensual position is that um, Austronesian peoples originated in South China. The, the languages are thought to originate, uh, you know, differentiate from ancestral languages in become proto-Austronesian in Taiwan but there's a likelihood that it's actually in South China. So somewhere, you know, on on both sides of, I don't remember the name of the strait, but between mainland China and Taiwan. And that these people were agriculturalists and uh, entered insular Southeast Asia and and into the Pacific with a, a series of technologies that weren't there before, you know, red slip pottery, maritime technology, a series of animals and plants, agriculture. And the correlation is so strong, it would seem quite obvious that, as they set out to colonize these lands, they were carrying with them perpendicularly hafted tattooing instruments. And so that that gives us an idea if we're going to latch on to the history of Austronesian peoples, that these tools, this technology originated maybe sometime before 6,000 years ago and was carried throughout the range of Austronesian-speaking peoples, so basically, you know, I, I just latched on to the work of archaeology and uh, historical linguistics, given the super high correlation. Now, there, there are some exceptions, you know, and it's important to talk about them because they, they do serve to anchor, in my opinion, they serve to anchor the appearance of the, the PHTI on the Asian mainland. And most notable exception is what I call the continental subgroup. There's an area, you know, you could, you could draw a circle uh, in the Himalayan foothills above Indochina so north burma extreme southwestern china and extreme eastern india the naga people the apatani and the drone of china uh, use perpendicularly half the tattooing instruments when i first uh, found that the naga are the best documented they use combs and um i went to see my teacher and i said i kind of got a problem you know i got this group that's outside and i was, he's like who And i said the naga He's like, oh, the Naga, you know, everybody who looks at Indonesia, that's, you know, the Naga pop up. There's so many similarities and there's been all sorts of hypotheses over time as as to why. You know, there's a German scholar, Heine Geldern, in the 1930s wrote The Wanderings of the Austronesians. And to him, you know, in those days, diffusion was so popular. It's like, well, they wandered up there, you know, longhouses, headhunting, ornaments, stories, so many things. If you look at linguistics, historical linguistics, you know, it's complex, people disagree, um, but there there are some clues and there are some positions that place the origin of the Austronesians in the Flying Tiger Gorge, which is like 50 kilometers as the crow flies from where the drone used perpendicularly hafted tattooing instruments today. So my idea is that somewhere in, in, uh, you know, the southern Chinese mainland, there was groups of people probably already tattooing as, you know, Southern China seems to be a, a major locus for tattooing. Thai tattooing is derived from southern China through the Dai people who migrated to Japan and tattooed were also from a general area that could be defined as the southern half of China. So within this area, I think people developed perpendicularly half tattooing for reasons we could speculate on and that lead to really interesting reflections, but you know, remain speculative. So they split off from probably inline tattooing on the continent and some remnant groups are up there in the, in this continental area. And then, you know, the rest is uh, Austronesian. So when I say it's widely and exclusively shared by Austronesians, there is that exception and three or four exceptions in Papua New Guinea. Now in Papua New Guinea, there is tattooing with perpendicularly hafted tattooing instruments and the vast majority of people who practice this tattooing are Austronesian speakers. So they settled along the coast along the north coast and along the southeast coast
1: i just wanted to come back to something you mentioned before about this idea that turtle shell definitely used as a tattoo instrument but there was someone else who'd suggested no and i wanted to know a little bit more about what kind of evidence you use to determine whether something is used as a tattoo and instrument versus not
3: yeah when you're doing archaeology you're gonna do a trace wear analysis. So, you know, the idea is you're gonna recreate a tool and you're gonna um, tattoo with it. Often you'll use pig skin or something like that. And you'll compare the micro marks on it, the wear, the polish, etc. cetera. It'll give you an idea. When you're working with ethnographic, you know, examples in museum collections and whatever, there's a bit of intuition going in there, but there's also some real like, material traits, like you'll notice some tools, there's no patina, you know, they, they don't seem to have been used, they're ink stained, often the points are rudimentary, like they're made to look like points, they're not necessarily, you don't get the feeling they're so functional, you know, they're like for the tourist trade or even for museum collectors who were, you know, tasked with gathering stuff and they would ask people to make them, you might not go through all the trouble to make proper points. Lashing also, the way, the the points are attached to the handle. See, like a big shoddy lashing, you know. So, the turtle shell tools I'm talking about, they're so fine. You know, they're some of the most beautiful tattooing tools I've ever seen. And I think that's one of the reasons, or might be one of the reasons why turtle shell is so attractive. It makes a beautiful tool. Nice pattern, and the needles are very fine. I think that they, they get finer needles on turtle shell than the Samoans get with the owl. It, it, it kind of explains why it hurts. I mean, I have some here too, and I'm like, those are. Big
2: needles. Speaking of that pain that you're talking about experiencing when you get a tattoo with something like a like a turtle shell needle or or a, one of these perpendicular hafted instruments, how far does your experience go with these things? Have you have you done much experimenting on yourself, or have you had one of these tattoos?
3: No, no, I've never felt the bite of the owl. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Neither have
3: I but um I've tattooed myself with an electric machine you know twenty some years ago, so I was curious but that's about it, and I've done some experimental work to help uh, some buddies out you know with uh with bone awls, but yeah, that's about the limit of it
2: would you would you speak about that experimental work a bit what what was the process and did, was it just with bone?
3: Yeah, it was just with bone um my friend Christian gates St Pierre after wrote me and he said said what you know, you have any suggestions? And so I, you know, I gave suggestions about ink. And he asked me, you want to come to the laboratory and just, uh, you know, poke at a pigskin for 3,000 pokes and we'll look at it in a microscope. So, I mean, that was it.
0: So you're been the vegetable guy there, but obviously you've got several papers on this. What's next for you? Are you still uh, continuing
3: this work? Yeah, yeah. I've never stopped. Well, I mean, you know, people are always asking me to have give a hand. And also, I just love to give my opinion, you know, and get in there. I mean, I got, you know, it's it's my principal hobby to this day. I'm working on a lot of things at, at once, you know, who knows what'll come out. I'm working on uh, uh, Inuit tattooing right now. I've got something with Aaron also um, in the works, a couple of things. I mean, so many, I'm always telling Aaron I'm in, but we, we don't get that much done and it's my fault.
0: <laughs> I kind of know that feeling.
3: You know, you were asking in the, the questions you sent, you know, what, what are my research methods? And obviously, I'm, I'm like one of those uh, giant machines, you know, in placer mining or something. I, I gather all the ore and try and extract little specks of gold out of it. So I communicate with anyone I can. And what I find about interacting with traditional practitioners, traditional indigenous practitioners, is um, it could be, you know, super rich and so educating. It gives like profound insight. But in many cases, there's some serious bottlenecks because of, you know, the notion of revivals have a bit of problem with that word because I often think. And not necessarily revivals, but recontextualizations or, you know, internal appropriation of something and, and, and it's used in a different way and used in different context. So you often find that there's bottlenecks where the knowledge of the technology goes back to the same literature that I've been reading or to the same white scholars that I've been corresponding with for 20 years.
0: Yeah, it's like salvage ethnography is happening or some of the salvage linguistics. I'm curious since you brought it up. I know that uh, a lot of Tahitians, Maori, Hawaiians and Tongans have all relearned perpendicularly have to tattoo instrument technology from the Samoans. How close do you think what they're doing now is to what and I'm going to I'm going to do scare quotes here, the traditional tattooing that they did pre-missionary pre-colonial what what's happening there
3: Well, you know, it's their thing, right? I'm not in a position to judge what's culturally satisfying to them. But obviously there is a homogenization of the technology because uh, the Suluapi family decided to teach and people decided to learn. And that's due to the fact that Samoa had an unbroken continuity where elsewhere there wasn't. You know, I know in Tahiti, most of the people who started tattooing again started tattooing with homemade machines. And many people you know, Tahiti is still tattooed by machine. And also the patterns are most often borrowed from the Marquesas, but you know, that's what's satisfying to them makes me happy. You know, Cultures change and cultures evolve and, and, and they serve the function that people want them to serve. But as a, a historian, it's interesting modern history, but it doesn't give me any insights, you know, into their old technological process. It's gone through the bottleneck of Samoa.
2: Well, Before we let you go, I wanted to say thanks for coming on with us. It was all really interesting. And I wanted to go back to the rarity of these two-pronged or two-needled instruments. And maybe if you have any insight on why an odd number is so common.
3: I remember reading about Egypt, about people in Egypt in modern times, or you know, in 19th century or early 20th century, there may have been some question of uh, lucky numbers and Superstition. Obviously once you have more than one needle, and you know, one needle is really quite rare, but it's it's there. It's far from the most efficient because the minute you have two needles, you have capillarity. You you have that physical process where the liquid will be drawn in between the needles. So there's a much better holding of the pigment. But you only need two, you know. And I don't know why they're so rare, honestly. That's what I was
0: thinking too. And and one of those things that I would have never known until I started poking on myself is once you get two needles, you don't need the thread anymore, right?
3: Mm-hmm. no, that's right, yeah. And the thread doesn't do such a good job at soaking up. I always thought the thread does a better job at limiting depth.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's what I found too. So, you know, but, but then again, there's enough resistance to the skin. You don't really go as deep as you think you ever are when you start poking yeah. away at yourself.
3: Um, I wanted to bring up something, it, it, it kind of touches on the needles and stuff. You know, when you you look at perpendicular hafting, And and one of the traits that says, oh yeah, this is related. This is like like there's a family history and it's not a convergence of form determined by function. It's kind of arbitrary. You know, look, look at the Japanese. You can do anything with the most simple tool. Obviously super refined in technique and in materials. They're getting huge coverage, superb quality with the simplest tool. Obviously with, you know, extraordinarily fine needles and great technique you know, as far as like the physical movement of it. So, you know, the perpendicular hafting in the mallet can seem really quite arbitrary. And then it becomes surprising. You know, once people started using it, they almost never give it up. That's another thing you see in the sample. There very few groups within Austronesian speakers end up using inline tools. You get a bit in the Philippines, I suspect there's a, a link to influence from the mainland, which they're close to. Place in, in Papua in the 1940s, they switched to inline tools. But I believe there is a functional reason why people switch to perpendicular to hafting. And that's got to do with the fact that that kind of tapping that you do provides a power and precision. So the more needles you have, and think of the Samoan, it's a thick needle too. Try imagining poking that in by hand, you know? There's, there's a difficulty there. And um, at the same time, the fact that the arm acts like a spring, you know, the arm and handle act like a spring, it, it helps control the depth. And I came to that realization through a circuitous route. Around the world, people use fleams for bloodletting, and there's a variant of the fleam You know, in in old medical practices, it's still used in veterinary practices. There are perpendicularly hafted fleams, which are known in Europe from Roman times, which are known in the Americas, which are known in Egypt, which are known in the Pacific. And they're documented. I wrote in a paper, you might have read, all shark's teeth tattooing tools in the Pacific. My position, very strongly held, is that they're all a medicinal instrument. Surgical Lancets, as they were called in a paper from the 40s in the Journal of Poly- Polynesian Society. So in looking at this, interesting, you know, relative possibly, you know, and that's one of the speculations is, is it derived from the fleams? I read a PhD thesis in veterinary medicine about horse care, where they discussed the continued use of these fleams, perpendicularly hafted fleams, And the author clearly states that, Why they're used is because it provides force to pierce the horse skin and control of depth in order not to go through the vessel that you're trying to leach of its blood. So this also leads me to believe that the prototypical perpendicularly to instrument doesn't start off, as we might intuitively believe, with a single needle. And then they added more and more and it got wider and wider. I think they were trying to bang in large needle arrays and that this was an effective method that they maybe knew from medicinal practices or from sculpture and there's a whole connection between Mm. sculptors and tattooers in japan in in the pacific but i've looked for sculptors using you know little ads with indirect percussion and i've talked to people in the pacific it doesn't seem to be such a thing you know such a big thing like you know we're, we're speculating but definitely it gives power and precision
0: But we know Siapo, the tapas designs, the sculpture in the Fales, the houses, the poles, they all share similar designs. And so the principles of applying those even if it's not, and I'm just thinking of a tattoo artist that we tracked down in American Samoa who actually was carving all of the woodwork in a church when we found him, and it was all tattoo designs. That to get those same designs, the principles are going to be similar. So even though we're talking about now, and maybe you do tattoos first and the woodworking second, maybe, I mean, I could see where they're all sort of mixed up together over time. That's fascinating. I love that. And, and it makes perfect sense if you've ever... Uh, if you've tried to tattoo, one of the yeah, biggest yeah. fears I have, and I, I, I'm, I'm digressing, but you got me thinking. One of the fears of tattooing is always that you'll go so de- too deep, but the way you prevent that is either you use a, a dull as shit needle that ends up just hurting and scarring you worse, mm-hmm. or you use a bunch of needles, and they just can't go that far when they're all bound together like that.
3: Well, yeah, I mean, if you look at the Samoan owl, the point itself is limited. I mean, you know, it doesn't can't go much further than that length because you know, so that's all because obviously when you're tattooing you don't you, you don't want a lot of blood and you don't want yeah. scarring because those two things are going to get you know they're going to move pigment out of the, of the sweet spot
0: and and the principle of hitting it is because it can only go so deep but you still got to get it in so you've got to nail it in if you were to just push it it probably wouldn't penetrate the skin at all
3: that's what i'm thinking and and uh, if you look in uh you know the 19th century uh, the British, British Navy, British Army, I don't know. They had tattooing stamps, you know, which is, a, which is a really odd form. There may have been tattooing stamps in China. There's a great paper on early Chinese tattoo that describes tattooers in markets using stamps. So a complete design drawn in needles, which is stamping one shot and you're done. How practical are the Chinese? But um, we have that for uh, deserter marks. Wow. So deserters would be stamped with the D you know the mark of infamy, and those tools are spring-loaded. So you know, you, they weren't just stamping it by hand. There's like a spring mechanism. So it goes, come, clink, you know, and and it goes in. And to get back to fleams, a lot of fleams are also spring-loaded if they're not being used with a with a mallet.
0: Ben, you've given us a lot to think about. I love this. Any parting comments?
3: Well.
1: For me, it's mainly just about how people can get in touch with you. If anyone would be interested in finding
3: out more about your research, I guess we can post somewhere in my email. <laughs> yes, yeah, we can. We can post the email. Yeah. Now, yeah, people can talk, contact me by email. Um, I guarantee, from my experience in receiving questions, I mean, ninety-five percent of people will get Google it. But you know, someone might come through and get something else than Google it. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: Thanks for listening to the Inking of Immunity podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at inking.of.immunity and on Twitter at inking underscore immunity. Inking of Immunity is funded in part by the U.S. National Science Foundation grant, BCS-2017553. Associate producers are me, Mike Smetana and Becky Owens and executive producer is Chris Lynn. Our associate producers and editors are Julia Sponholz and Patricia Arnett. We thank them for making us sound good. And if you like this show, check out the other one Chris co-hosts with Kara Ackerbach, called The Sausage of Science, where they talk to human biologists every week about new research in the field. You can find that show like this one wherever good podcasts are given away for absolutely free.